0: everybody, and welcome back to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today we have Ben Hong, Ari Clark, guest panelist Vikas Ashoka, and special guest Henry Zhu. In last week's episode, we closed on what are the responsibilities of an open source maintainer. This week, we're continuing our talk with Henry, starting with what responsibilities do open source maintainers have in terms of shaping the future of the projects that they maintain?
1: instead, we should be thinking about how to remove options and make things simpler. But the incentive is to add things because it's easier to tweet about or market. And spending the time to think of an actually better solution that's like simpler takes a long time that doesn't have output. And so I think as a maintainer, you're like, well, I don't see the benefit of this. And so I'd rather fix a bug because it makes me feel better that I did something incrementally. And I think that's a struggle that's really hard to get over. This is true in any job, right? Fixing bugs might be easier Mm -hmm. than trying to refactor or just literally come up with something new. And then now that I'm kind of in a role where I'm not really writing as much code, I'm always thinking like, am I even doing anything? Like, what am I even doing for the project? You know, like being a leader, quote unquote, like going on podcasts, talking to people that supposedly has nothing to do with code from the outside but to me it says a lot about the whole like open source is not about code it's about other things
0: yeah but i'm curious to hear more about these ideas or this struggle especially when it kind of gets away from you like in increment i think you wrote about how the users of babel really wanted to use unsolidified features in javascript and how It was kind of a struggle for you if I understood correctly about like whether you should encourage that or not and like how to deal with it because regardless of how you would handle it, like people were integrating the next version, even though it might change and break things going down the road. So when that happens to you, what's your thought process there? How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, actually, that's a really good specific example of the problem we're talking about of like... How open should you be and how close should you be to feedback or contribution? So, what we're talking about here is basically the idea that most languages don't really allow you to have any feedback to where the future of the language goes. Like, think, just think about like Java or Python or whatever. You know, they have like committees and you can talk to them and email them and stuff like that, but it's not as, I use the word democratic, I guess, as JavaScript, where There is a sense where you could propose something and bring it up to the committee and then even implement in Babel. And if you get enough people using it, it'll probably go in, even if it takes like a few years. But that's a lot more, I guess, possible than other languages where you might not even think that's an option. And I think most people don't think that, but one of my, I guess, goals with Babel as a really high level is helping people understand that you can have an impact on the language that you use and also the tooling that you use instead of just using it and just you know we talk about the ivory tower a lot but it's handed down from the tc39 gods or something it's like no they're just <laughs> regular developers too <laughs> <laughs> i've been to some meetings i'm just a developer as well and most of the time i have no idea what's going on so that's another admission that you don't have to know exactly what's going on to make those contributions i guess i'm hoping that Because we have this tool that allows you to use proposals before they come out, new syntax, I think that's a good thing. But you can see the bad side is like, well, what if the extreme opposite would be that everyone has their own proposal, they don't even ask anyone, they make their own plugins, and then JavaScript becomes this monster of, you go on GitHub and there's just all this syntax, you have no idea what's going on. That's the fear that people have, right? Of allowing anyone to say whatever they want. Because most people just don't know how to write a programming language, like literally how to add new features. And you could say that's gatekeeping, right? Be like, well, who are you to say who's allowed to do it? And that's the whole point. We want people to contribute, just like we want people to tweet, we want people to make comments. But at some point you need some kind of barrier. It just sounds bad saying that our boundaries, like we have these things everywhere. We just, I guess a lot of times they're kind of implicit. I mean, maybe making them implicit is a good thing, but we just don't like the idea of doing that. And it's a hard decision to draw a line for any of this stuff. We talk about like borders for countries or membership, right? Or citizenship. Like these are all things that are like, well, I think that's what I mean by assumptions. Like we all want as many people as possible to do that. But if you thought about Mm -hmm. the idea of design by committee and you have like a thousand people trying to make a language, it probably won't work really well. Mm-hmm. People already hate the idea that 2039 is like 50 people or whatever it is instead of one. But we also know the problem of people always say that BDFL isn't good or something like that. So yeah, this does that's get into benevolent this. Benevolent Dictator oh, yeah.
0: for Life, right?
2: hmm
1: Just different governance structures in open source, right? And something that most developers have no idea about or experience with and you do your open source project by yourself and then it gets popular and then that's a bad thing because now you feel like you have to like do something about it. I feel like we almost need some kind of weird. I don't think we need training like I'm going to make a manual this is how you do open source when you're successful, do this. It's just more like culturally everyone wants to make their project viral, but then after that happens, it just becomes a burden and I don't want to discourage people from doing open source. It's just like be more real about like mm-hmm. what the reality is of what you will feel. When it happens, you might not feel that way personally, but I'm just saying that just generally that's what happens in the cycle of burnout and stuff like that. And that same thing. It's like even saying something negative about open source may be part of the same idea of being open. It's really hard to bring up these conversations other than I think through like a podcast or talk because people will just assume you have bad intentions or something. I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of the challenging things that I think you bring up, Henry, is that a lot of us, when we join open source, we're joining as individual contributors. And so, you know, a lot of us can know what that's like joining a company, a new team. And so you're eager to work on tickets and build things or fix bugs. But then I think to your point of like when you move into that maintainer role, or, you know, in the instance, like in my experience of joining the core team, like you almost are in more of a manager role now and less of an IC, but you kind of have individual contributor responsibilities too. And I think maybe that's part of the difficulties is there's no one there to help you with the transition, right? To your point, like all of times in a company, if you're going to become a team lead and manage five people, you've had people sort of help you with manager training or those sort of things to help you transition from one to another. I'm wondering if you found any resources or processes you went through to help you transition because my background's in psychology. So it was a little bit easier for me to make that transition from more of an individual contributor to more like managerial. But yeah, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I've never had any formal training in any of this. So I think that's one of those things where you have a lot of self-doubt, where you're like, am I doing a good job? How do you evaluate yourself? And are your peers even going to do that? Like other maintainers, you don't have a boss telling you. And I think that those things are things we normally don't want anyway. We don't want a boss telling us what to do and those (laughs) things, right? We don't want to go to trainings that sometimes are not even helpful at all, right? A lot of us would like to say that the experience that we have by doing it Is a Mm -hmm. lot more helpful than like watching some videos or listening to some talk. Sort of true. I think you definitely need both. I don't want to say like, oh, I did a good job. The project still exists. So I guess I had some part to do with that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone can really say, oh, you did a good job or not. Like there's no book you can read or other people to follow. You're on your own project. Every project is different. And I think that's hard. I think maybe one thing I'm thinking about a lot too is just we really need certainty. Um, we really need this like standard that we're doing the right thing and we don't have that. And I think maybe it's an illusion to think that we had that in the first place. And I think that's what I mean by faith has a lot to do with it, not religious faith, just faith in general of sometimes you got to take a risk. Sometimes the things that you're working on, especially the things that are important, there's no answers. No mm-hmm. one's really figured it out and you're probably going to make mistakes. And I think... Maybe the struggle with some of the stuff is that we just assume that everyone is fixed in their way of thinking or how they do things and whether they're smart or not or you know whether they did something wrong or bad, like people change. If you think about code, even though the code runs, right? If someone doesn't understand how the code works, I think I mentioned this in the talk. The code in some sense is like dead because the people that wrote it maybe aren't there anymore. And it's a lot of work to kind of rebuild the knowledge that a maintainer has. And that's why they're so valuable. That's why it's so hard to replace someone, anyone in your company, right? They could have spent their whole time documenting every single thing in their head. They don't even know the things that they should be writing down, right? The way that comes out is through like talking to them and working with them. And so when they leave, you know, if your project only has like three people and one person leaves, it feels like the whole project is like over sometimes. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned influencers on podcasts, podcast and it sounds like you have like all of the downsides or I guess the more work-heavy aspects of it, like this community that you're perceived as being responsible for and this almost obligation or public expectation that you'll keep on pumping out content. But I'd like to take a brief tangent and revisit this idea of, well, you didn't really put it this way, but this is how my brain interpreted it. Like this potential for having like an urban dictionary for JavaScript or something where anybody can decide where (laughs) the future of the language goes (laughs) as it evolves in use.
1: Huh. That's a
2: good... I like (laughs) that.
0: Make it happen. I want to see that fire.
2: (laughs) Urban JS.
0: Oh, God. Because one thing that struck me when I was learning JavaScript, and Ruby, I guess it stood out a little bit more even, was that everything is like really dependent on knowing English. And a few weeks ago, you tweeted an experiment about aliasing variable names and things to other languages. So I'm curious... When you have ideas like that, that don't really fit into maybe what people see as your main responsibility, like Babel or something, how do you find the time or how do you fit that in? Like, is it an internal struggle to justify doing those things for yourself?
1: Yeah, I would put it that way. Because even if you're paid, I guess, if you're not at a company, like we said, no one's telling me what to do. There's an internal fear of people saying, why are you spending your time doing this? But I don't know if anyone would actually do that. And of course, if I actually did something bad, yeah, it'd be good if someone told me. But it's sort of like, what is our freedom for? And I'm like, if the freedom I have in doing open source to maintain Babel is just fixing some bugs, I feel like it's not a good use of my time even. Mm -hmm. Why not think about these things? Like the things that are actually going to change how we're going to do programming, right? Is something different, not the same thing. We could all just implement a bunch of proposals and it's so obvious enough. Those are the things that you should be paying for. Like someone should just be paid to write some proposals, you know, write code mods to switch people over when decorators are not there and people are still (laughs) trying to get rid of them. Browsers should be just paying people, either us or they just do it themselves. To make these transforms because they have an incentive to do this because if people only use babel and then the output is the es5 version that babel transformed we're not even running the code that is native in like es6 native code that they wrote in c plus or whatever it was right mm-hmm. like those are supposedly faster if they keep optimizing it right the code size is less so when they want people they should want to make babel Take advantage of preset EMV and like compile less code, basically. But that's not happening. And so if you think about it, we have no incentive to do any of this stuff. I was just thinking about it, it's like, why are we doing this? And it's like, just because we want to, and there's I guess goodwill that is like dying <laughs> in people's <laughs> minds, maybe. I don't know. It's a cynical way of thinking about it. But yeah, in terms of the side project thing, it's like I'm trying to I guess give myself the freedom to think differently because culturally we came up with this definition maintainer, that if you think of maintainer, it just means fix bugs, make releases. Right. And I guess maybe one way of combating that is just instead of saying that code isn't all there is, I should just do it myself. And so it's hard to do that because it sort of needs some encouragement from other people like, hey, this is a good thing. I like that you're doing this that's where like internal motivation, external motivation go hand in hand where it's like you might have a lot of conviction that this is the right thing to do, but if you see that no one cares, you're still going to feel like not good about it. Even though you shouldn't be doing things for people's validation, like it's good to have a community of accountability and friends to help you, right? In anything, honestly, right?
0: Yeah. How do you balance accountability as opposed to you know your own ability to determine what's right or what you want to be doing? next because I feel like it's really easy for those lines to get blurred and either internalize what everybody else wants you to do or just be like I'm not going to listen to anybody I'm always right you know so how do you find that balance
1: I don't think I found it so I'll just say that (laughs) um you know what's funny is I say that and other people are like wow you totally look like you have and I was like it's so weird because internally I don't feel that way and I don't know if that's good or bad it's just like how i see myself i guess yeah i think it is easy our culture somehow is very individualistic but then also group oriented at the same time in different ways right like the way we think about like our choices like we're the whole free rational choice people yeah like i am myself and and i can do whatever i want but then just think about the current time like a pandemic and the choices we make affect other people. And this is an obvious thing that I guess not everyone <laughs> thinks is obvious. But I know, it's hard to think that at the same time, I should have the freedom to choose things, but I should take into account how people feel. And even if you don't know how they feel, it's just like how that affects other people. And I think it's a hard decision now because it feels like almost every decision you make can be a negative thing. Like even the idea of buying something from a big company, and you're like, oh, that is a bad thing. Something recently is taking money from companies. It's funny, if you think about taking donations, if you don't actually do this, it never crossed my mind. I was like, well, who is that coming from? You just think like, oh, I just accept it from anyone. And then you're like, well, what if someone gives you money that you don't like? You have to figure out are you going to reject it or not? Obviously, if there's like a legal activity, you can't, but you don't like this company or other people don't like this company. It's just a hard thing to think about. Versus maybe at the end, you should just stop doing all this and just go to a company and get a salary. But (laughs) even that, it's like, well, the company that I work at, are they always doing the right thing? And it's like, I don't know. We have this sort of purity type of culture too, where it's like everything has to be perfect, I guess. But right now, yeah, it is true that like almost everything we do can be harmful, but we have to make decisions and I guess accept that there will be consequences. But yeah, I think... It's really easy that line of thinking to turn into, I don't want to do anything. I'm just going to sit in my room, sort of thing, even if you have the privilege of doing that. But yeah.
3: You know, something this conversation is like bringing up for me, thinking of funding and this onus on you, the maintainer, what the maintainer's role is, and institutions. Is, I think I heard you and Nadia talking about this on your podcast, but I'm curious how you think of this dichotomy between like you are this group oriented activity, working in open source, but also this individualism of, you know, having a Henry Zoo brand, right? And like some model that I thought was really interesting that Nadia brought up in the conversation I heard was, should maintainers and as a result, should GitHub and other organizations promote more of a creator focused culture, right? So like, should there be a Henry Zoo brand where Henry Zoo is sponsored, (laughs) kind of like Twitch streamers or YouTube? artists, or even like folks who make tutorials for stuff like Babel.
1: I think this is something that she was trying to get at at the end of her book. I think in the podcast, she was mentioning that in some ways, this has already happened in all the other places, right? Like streaming and YouTube and stuff. We call them creators. But then in open source, maybe we have this good and bad, the whole meritocracy thing and like the whole code is what matters. So why do you care about the person behind it? And I think that's good in the sense of, It doesn't emphasize people and it shows that it's a group effort. The bad thing in some sense in terms of funding would be that, well, the more you make it about the group, the more it feels like no one knows who you are. And I think one of the reasons why sponsorship works is because of the fact that parasocial thing makes it look like you know them really well, right? Mm -hmm. You see their face, you hear them all the time. If you give a talk every once in a while, like some people are kind of well-known with a YouTube channel, like they're always talking every week or day or something. And there's a community that is built around this person. And you could call it a cult or something. But I guess in some sense, that's good. I think we all have this weird reaction to that, right? We talk about this hero worship and stuff like that all the time. And it will just naturally happen, I guess. And so how do we kind of balance those two things? We're like, how can we make sure that we know that these individuals are distinct people and they have different views on things and have their own stories that are very personal, that maybe some of them should be out there. And at the same time, it's a group thing. So I think one problem that we have now is like, well, I'm able to fund myself for battle full-time at this point, And that's still a struggle, but I'm doing this with other people. And if I want to be individualistic, then yeah, I don't need to care about how much money they're making or if they're going to stick around. But like the only reason why I can do this is because of these other people, not just because of the code, but even mentally and just emotionally, right? We get to help each other out in that way. And so I have an incentive and I want to help them. And it's hard, like that social capital doesn't really transfer, I think. Like if I tweeted, hey, you should sponsor Nicolo or Brian, other people on our team, it doesn't mean anyone's going to actually do that. I don't even tweet it by myself because I know that just because someone saw that they're not going to pay money just to sponsor you. I don't feel like I want to advertise that, I guess, because if they only did it because they saw that, they're probably going to not donate in the future anyway. Like they're going to stop pretty soon. So I'm okay with not getting a few dollars just because they didn't see it. I'd rather have people that really want to support me and I'm actually doing something they want versus just that was cool or something. That's just my thinking around that. Obviously, there are people that like saying you know the whole like subscribe thing like if i made a youtube channel i don't want to do that to me it's like if you really care why do i have to go out of my way to say it if anything all these other youtubers are saying it for me but for themselves like everyone knows <laughs> i just don't see why it's necessary so
0: well since henry won't say it i'll let our <laughs> listeners know don't forget to visit henryzoo.com to see the latest merch drop
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> zoo swag he's like yeah yeah. I'm standing in line at six PM the night before when it comes out just so you know.
0: <laughs> it strikes me that there's so many different types of maintenance work in open source. Like for example, even with the advertisers vetting the advertisers and like deciding what goes on the site, working with all of these services that allow you to take in sponsorships and donations. Like that's just one type of different maintenance versus like going through the issues versus reviewing pull requests and stuff. So I'm curious if there's like a subculture or like a sub community in open source that's dedicated to more of that side of things. Because even with YouTubers, they have their editing team, their PR team, their merch team. But with open source, it kind of feels like, well, you just do all the things and you can figure it out by yourself. And if you mess up, that's your fault. You should have done a better job. Yeah. Mm. How do you manage that? Or do you think that we can move towards a place where those things are more easy to handle?
1: Yeah, I guess the idea of roles could be helpful. Sort of like, you know, we have that at work too. I feel like with open source, it would be nice to say more like you kind of are like a lead or, or just like focusing on this thing, but it doesn't mean you can't do these other things. And also you don't want to, same idea of like, you don't want to impose things on people. You know, I'm not anyone's boss either. So I'm not going to be like, you have to do this. And so the bad part of that as well, if we only do what we want then there are definitely going to be things that are untouched or unmaintained and so the whole advertising or sponsorship thing is just not something we think about i think the reason why you find like all this spam showing up is like you see it and you're like okay i'll try to get rid of some stuff and then later you don't realize it's like a huge problem now this has come to light it's like oh this is actually a whole task that you have to vet through these things of people giving you one dollar and trying to show up on your website or something and it makes me question do we even want any pictures on our website anymore at all just because you have to deal with this? The pain of that is just sure. not helpful. And then also because they think they're going to get SEO benefit. And I think most of us put this like real sponsored link so that it's not supposed to. So I'm like wondering why they're doing it. And if you're a big company giving us money, they don't need SEO benefit for sure. <laughs> and I don't think they really care necessarily that their logo is up there. I'm sure they want something to show that they're doing something because it makes them look better, like goodwill in the community. But then also you might question like, well, we're getting money from these people. Isn't that a good thing? At least we're like taking it away from people. (laughs) That's what people say. (laughs) I don't know. It's hard questions. I think these are things that, like I said, it's hard to talk about just casually because, yeah, it's hard. It is assumed that you kind of need to do everything. And I think maybe the reason why I even decided to be a leader, if you even want to call it that, is just because nobody did it. And I think that's how open source works, unfortunately, now, Mm -hmm. where the only reason why you get to where you are is because nobody cared about the thing that you cared about. And then they are focused on something else. They're like, hey, you seem pretty motivated. All right, you're a maintainer now. Great. (laughs) And you just kind of give them a bunch of responsibility. And at first, it sounds like an opportunity and it turns into a burden if you don't know how to manage that. And I think that's where the whole overpatient patient patient stuff matters. And the whole idea of the currency of open source is not the code because, you know, you can reproduce that and consume that as much as possible and doesn't affect maintainers. The thing that you're affecting is their attention and their time. Mm. The more people that consume open source, it might mean more people making issues and consuming more time. But... It doesn't mean that those maintainers have to do it. And so that's where I mean by saying no is so hard. And it's so funny that in the end, it's like maintainers are so free to do whatever they want. And in the end, the culture, the environment makes you feel like you're not free. But you can choose to stop answering people's tweets or issues or whatever it is. Just say no, right? Stop working on the weekends, stop working during work, you know? But I think just saying just say no as a tweet or something doesn't show that you empathize and understand the actual feeling that you get doing it. And I think that's the real struggle Mm -hmm. of like, how do we help people so that they can do that? And I think that maybe needs some help from the platform too, like GitHub and stuff like that.
0: And that's all for this week's episode. Join us next week as we talk more with Henry about what counts as maintenance work. And until next time, enjoy the view.